Judges chapter 3. We'll pray and then we'll get started. God, we come to you tonight and I thank you for the good smile and faces that we have. I thank you that we love each other. And God, I pray that you help us to continue to have a heart of love because that's what you call us to do, dear Lord. And don't let the enemy get us upset with bad attitudes and get angry with one another or be short with one another. But dear Lord, help us to come and to fellowship with one another and to, to sing praises to you, dear Lord, and to learn in your word. I pray that you help us to get this stuff. God, some of this stuff we read is so hard. It's hard for us to wrap our head around. Maybe we don't always understand it. But God, I pray that you give me clarity tonight as I as I preach and teach these things, some of which may be kind of tough for us to wrap our head around. But God, I pray that we know that everything that you do is good, dear Lord, that you are good, that you are loving. And I pray that you'd be glorified and help me to preach and teach in a way that's going to bring glory to you and understanding to each one of us tonight. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we were introduced to the first judge of the book of Judges. Uh, Othniel was the judge that we encountered last week. Uh, pretty basic story. Not a whole lot of details there. Pretty simple. Israel had turned against God. We knew that from the first two chapters in our introduction over the last few weeks. That Israel was turning against God. Uh, God would, would turn them over to their enemies. He would let the enemies come in and overtake them. Uh, and then they would, they would cry out to the Lord, and God would provide a judge for them. That judge would deliver them, and they would be good for a little while. And then they would repeat the cycle again. Now, last week, the judge we saw was Othniel. Now, I feel like I keep talking about places when we're going through judges, so I whipped out the big giant map. Now, it may not help you guys, but it does help me, and maybe it'll be helpful to you guys to kind of see some of these places that we're talking about and kind of know where they are in the world today. Now, this part of the map here is modern-day Israel. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Africa would be all down here. We would be way over here across the ocean. We'd be this way. Uh, you would have Rome and, and Greece and, and England all up in this area right here. Over on this side of the map is where Asia would be and Russia would be up here. And, and this is the area where... Uh, there's a lot of excitement in the world today, and there's a lot of excitement in Bible times. And so this is where we are right now. This was the promised land, or the land of Canaan that we hear about. And that's where these inhabitants were, the Canaanites that we've read so much about. <coughs> Excuse me. And so uh, what we saw last week was we saw that the king of Aram, or the king of Mesopotamia, was the one who was coming against the Israelites, who was causing them trouble. Now, some of your translations may say one or the other, and that's because those areas are right there next to each other. Mesopotamia and Aram kind of meet right there in one area together. So that's where the king came from last week that was, that was coming against the Israelites. Now, it could have been that he was against all the Israelites in all of this area, but it, it may be that he was just in this part of the area. Now tonight we're kind of shifting gears because tonight the king who's going to come and going to, uh, to attack the Israelites and, and enslave them, I suppose may be a good word for it, uh, would be the king of Moab. That's who's coming against the Israelites today. Now he's coming from down here uh, to the south. Now the Israelites initially came from Egypt and made their way around down through here. They crossed one of these forks of the Red Sea. We don't know which one. Eventually, they kind of made it through this desert area in the Negev. They looped around, and they crossed the Jordan River and went into Jericho, which is right here. Now, that's the kind of the path that they've taken, and Jericho is going to come up in our passage 
tonight. And so that kind of gives you a visual aid of some of these places that we're talking about last week and tonight and in the weeks to come. You can kind of see a few of these places on this map. All right, Judges chapter 3, verse 12. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So here we are introduced to the problem. It's the same problem throughout all of Judges. The Israelites turned against the Lord. This method that he uses to bring punishment on them is through king, uh, the, the king of Moab, Eglon. Now, he doesn't just attack the Israelites and overtake them by himself. He also joins forces with the Ammonites, which is directly above Moab. So he joins forces with the Ammonites, and he also joins forces with the Amalekites. Now, we see the Amalekites up to this point of Scripture. We've already seen them a few times. The Amalekites were the ones who had followed the, the Israelites as they, were, as they were on their way to the promised land, and they got some of those who were, who were lingering back behind, and they attacked, they attacked the weak ones, the ones who were lingering behind. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Now, God was able to, uh, through Joshua and by God's power, of course, to deliver the people, but the Amalekites were a thorn in the Israelites' side from that point on. And we don't see much about the Amalekites here, but we do see a mention of them. And they're still a thorn in the Israelites' sides. Now, the Amalekites are the ascendants, the descendants of Amalek. Now, you, if you read your Bible on further, you may know, if you've already read, that the Amalekites come up again in the time of King Saul. The Amalekites were the one that God told King Saul to wipe them out. Why? because of the way and the things that they had done to Israel. They had, they had treated them in such a way, they had, they had fought against them, and through Saul, God had handed the Amalekites over to the Israelites, and God commanded Saul to completely destroy them, don't take any of their possessions, destroy their animals, destroy all the people, destroy everything. But Saul did not do that. Now that was a great sin against the Lord, and from that point forward in Saul's life, it was downhill because... He didn't do away with the Amalekites. And guess what? They were still a thorn in Israel's side, at least for a little while. And so here we see the bad guys. It's the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. And King Eglon here is kind of uh, heading up the show. And so he's going in and he's going to take over the Israelites. As it says, he does so for 18 years the Israelites served under Eglon. So this was not just a, this was not just for a couple of weeks. It's not like they turned away from the Lord and God said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a few bad days. No, this was 18 years. So the punishment that they had to, to suffer for their disobedience to the Lord, this was not a quick thing. This was a long process that they went, that they were, that they were serving under, under foreign people who had foreign gods, who, were, who, who, who did not have the same beliefs as them. At least they should not. Of course, we know by this point that the Israelites looked more like Canaanites than they did Israelites. Uh, they had really turned into Canaanites because they had begun to worship these other gods. Well, they did so for 18 years, but eventually they had enough. They realized their situation was bad, and so, as they did last week with Othniel, they called out to the Lord in verse 15. 
Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. Now, here we are introduced to the judge in this passage. The second one that we're seeing here in the book is Ehud. Now, we see a few things about him that are kind of interesting that the, that the, that the writer of Judges points out to us. He points out to us that he's a Benjaminite, which is not terribly odd to know somebody's background, the tribe they come from. But he points out that he's left-handed. Now, this is an interesting little note that he points out here. We'll talk about that more coming up. There may be something we can get from that, or, or maybe we just read too much into it. But I don't think that the, that the writer of Judges put that in there just by coincidence. I think there was a reason that he mentioned Ehud was left-handed, and we'll talk about that in the verses to come. Verse 16, Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. Now, this is kind of a, this is kind of a serious story that we're supposed to read. I mean, it's kind of gross from this point forward. It's supposed to get kind of serious. So we've been introduced to the problem, the Israelites' turn. We've been introduced to the bad guy, who is, who is uh, the king of Moab, Eglon. And, and we've been introduced to the judge, who is Ehud. Now, he is a left-handed judge, who it says made a kind of a short sword, about 18 inches long, and he strapped it to his right side, as a left-handed person would, to reach over and grab that sword. And he hid it under his clothes. He took the money that the Israelites, or whatever tribute it was, some kind of offering that he was going to make to the king, he takes this offering so that he can get in the king's <coughs> present, and he goes to offer this to the king. And so, obviously, there's a plan going on in his mind. There's something going on that's been, that's been prepared. Now, God is going to use Ehud to deliver his people, although what we're about to see is that Ehud really wasn't a great guy. Or at least it doesn't appear that he was through the text. Now, we are going to see that more and more with some of these judges as we continue on. So the plan is in motion. The author of, of, of Judges here also gives us an interesting insight into the king. He was a very fat man. He was extremely fat, the text tells us. Now, again, his size is going to play a big part in the story and what unfolds moving forward. Verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence, and all his attendants left him. So, Ehud is taking this offering to the king. There are some who had come with Ehud, some Israelites more than likely, of course, that helped bring all of this offering or tribute, whatever it was, to the king. And after they brought it, Ehud dismissed those who carried it in, and then Ehud himself left. Now, I should have said this sooner. We'll backtrack just a little bit. It said... Uh, earlier on in the, in the passage in, in verse 13 that the king attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Now, the city of Palms is Jericho. Uh, we are told that in, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, I believe, is where it tells us, uh, where it talks about Jericho and refers to it as the city of Palms. So, Jericho is right here. This was one of the first places that the Israelites overtook whenever they came into the promised land. Now they came around this way and they crossed the Jordan and the Israelites overtook Jericho. It was theirs. 
Now, if you've read Joshua before, maybe you haven't, but in the story where the Israelites overtake Jericho, God says, any man who tries to rebuild the city and get it back going, a curse be on him. Obviously, Eglon didn't know about that curse that God had stated, or else he just didn't care. And so things were not going to end good for Eglon because God had already said anybody who tried to to build up uh, Jericho was going to face hard times. A curse was going to be on that person. And so by this point, the king had taken over Jericho, and this is where the king was. This is where Eglon was. He was in Jericho. Now, Gilgal is not on our map, but it would be here just slightly above Jericho. So after this, this tribute is brought to the king, uh, Ehud, he leaves and he goes as far as Gilgal, which is not very far, maybe like from here to Gloucester, let's say. I mean, he doesn't go very far. And then he turns and he comes back. He comes back before the king and he tells the king that he has a secret message that he wants to tell him. And so the king dismisses all those who are around him, all of his attendants, all of his servants, his guards, whoever's nearby, uh, he, he, he sends them away. He calls for silence and he sends those away. All right, verse 20. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his room upstairs where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a word from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Now, here we see why the king's size may play a part in where the king was. He was in a cool place because he was a very fat man. He was hot. We see that coolness or that idea of the king getting relief later on in the passage. And so the author here has given us very specific details about this situation, about the size of the king, uh, what hand that Ehud uses, the place where all this is happening. It's a cool place. All of these things are kind of coming together for a specific reason. Now, they... These may, may seem like trivial details to us, uh, but I think that there is some importance in these details that we see. So, Ehud and King Eglon are alone at this point in this cool room of the palace in Jericho. All right, in verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and Eglon's insides came out. Now, that's a pretty intense situation that happened there. Now, again, the author here is very specific. He used his left hand to grab the sword that was hid on his right thigh, tucked under his clothes, and that's what he used to stab the, the big fat king who's in the cooling room. Now, there are a couple of things that we make a take from the fact that he was left-handed. Uh, one thing, and this may be the most reasonable thing, is that he, he was left-handed, and therefore that might have been why he was allowed to get into the palace with a sword. Generally speaking, most people are right-handed even still today, and the right-handed person will keep their sword on their left side. And so it may have been that those guards who were checking him as he come through might not have thought to check his right side since he had the sword covered with his clothes. They may have simply felt his left side or looked and saw there was no sword and assumed that he was safe. Perhaps that is why that the author here mentions that he was left-handed and his sword was on his right side. Now that seems reasonable and that seems to uh, make some sense. Uh, another reason that it may mention that he's left-handed, it may just simply show that Ehud is a skillful guy. Now, we will see that again toward the end of the book of Judges in Judges chapter 20, 
where it talks about 700 Benjaminites who are all left-handed and they are very skilled. And so it could be that by saying he's left-handed is a way of showing that, that, that Ehud was no slouch. He was a skilled man, a, a, a good warrior. Uh, he, he, was, he, was, he was able to defend himself and hold a weapon. That would seem to fit the context of Judges chapter 20. Another theory that I've heard is that, uh, that, that, that by saying he's left-handed, it was, it was a way to show that God could use even people who were despised in that culture, that left-handed people were despised, although it doesn't seem that there's no scriptural any scriptural evidence for that because of the Judges 20 passage that seems to say that those who are left-handed are more fit for battle. They are better warriors because they are skilled and can use both hands. Uh, someone who is left-handed fighting someone who is right-handed has an advantage. Most right-handed people only fight right-handed people, and they have their shield in their left hand. And it's more difficult to fight someone who is coming at you left-handed. And so the Bible seems to say that it's a good thing to be a left-handed person. And so I don't believe uh, that, that this was some way of, of the author telling us here that God was using Ehud because he was at a disadvantage. I think probably just the opposite is true. He was probably left-handed and kept his sword on his right side so that he was able to sneak into the palace. Now, those are three theories for you to think about, and you can decide for yourself which one of those you think uh, may be uh, best suited for this passage, but those are some options for you to think about. So he plunges his sword into Eglon's stomach to the point that his insides come out. He's so fat that he can't even get the sword out of the king once he stabs him. And so the king who has come in and taken over the Israelites, God has seen that he has received just punishment. Now, we don't see a whole lot about Ehud's character that's told to us in this passage up to this point. And so maybe Ehud was a good guy, or maybe Ehud himself wasn't such a good guy. He was kind of deceiving in the way that he went into the palace to sneak in there with the tribute, and that he, that he told the king he had a secret for him. Now, we are never told that God told Ehud to do these things. Now, that's important for us to remember. It may not be that God told Ehud to do any of those things. It may simply be that it Ehud, as evil as he was, God used him in his evilness to accomplish good to deliver his people. Now, we've talked about that. Sometimes God does use evil nations to punish his people. And sometimes he uses people who are kind of evil themselves or, 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 or maybe not as good as they should be, let's say, to deliver his people. We're going to see that in Judges. And I think Ehud may be a good example of that. Now, that may be kind of a hard thing for us to wrap our head around. But, but, but uh, Eglon was a king who was not a good guy. He was an evil guy, and he was deserving of punishment. It just so happened that God brought that punishment through Ehud. And through Ehud, it also helped deliver God's people. Now, I'm not trying to say that Ehud was a saint here, because I don't see anything in the text that would lead us to believe he was. But he did accomplish the goal of delivering God's people. And sometimes God can use even bad people or bad things to make something good come from it. And we see that with some of these judges as we go through the book. In verse 22, Ehud escaped by by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. 
They looked and found the doors of the upstairs rooms locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. Now your translations are going to differ there on that last verse because the Hebrew is very hard to understand exactly what's being meant there. Now some translations will say he was covering his feet. Now that probably is the most literal translation, that he was covering his feet in the cool room. The problem is, is, is we don't really know exactly what that means. We don't know what the, what the intention there. Now, whatever he was doing, his servants did not want to come in. So whatever it means that he was covering his feet is he was doing something that the servants thought, we better not go in there. Now, it could have been that there was a restroom in the cool room, and maybe they thought he was in the restroom. It could have been that maybe uh, they thought he was just simply cooling himself. Maybe he had unbuttoned a few buttons on his shirt, and he was laying relaxing. In whatever way he was cooling himself, relieving himself, or had his feet covered. Now, that could mean a variety of different things, but whatever it meant, Whatever they thought he was doing, it was something that they would not dare barge in on the king in the midst of this private time that he was having in this cool room. And so this gave Ehud time to escape because the door was locked, they weren't ready to barge in, and so Ehud is escaping while the king's servants are trying to figure out what they are going to do. In verse 25, the servants waited until they became worried and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Verse 26, Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He crossed over the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horns throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down from the hill country, and he, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him and captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. Now, this is Israel's land here, and now that the king is gone... Uh, Ehud has, has gathered up the people and said, all right, now we're going to go down to Moab and we're going to take care of these people uh, who you've served under for all these years. Now God is going to deliver you, so you follow me. And so all of the fords of the river, that is all the places that were shallow and easy for people to walk across that would have gained entrance into Israel's land, they're, they're guarding those lands and they're going down to Moab and they're trying to keep any Moabites from coming back into the land in verse 29 at that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites all strong and able-bodied men not one of them escaped Moab became subject to Israel that day and the land was peaceful 80 years and so when they fought the Moabites it's not like they were fighting just some little rinky-dink people because the writer of Judges here tells us that it was 10,000 Moabites and they were all strong and able-bodied men. And so this tells us that God was with the Israelites. Now, the Israelites probably were a little weak at this point in time. If they had been under another king for 18 years, uh, they probably weren't a, a super strong military force. But with the power of the Lord and with the judge that God had had provided for them to, to lead them and to free them from the Moabites, they were able to go in and they were able to overtake the Moabites. And we see a similar result to what we saw last week. 
Now with Othniel, it was 40 years that the land was peaceful. Now we see uh, under Ehud, it was 80 years that the land was peaceful. And so the Israelites would, would have a pretty good stretch where they would do, do, do well for the Lord and be obedient for the Lord, uh, but then things would begin to go downhill. Eighty years is a pretty long time. That would, have been, that would have been a whole couple of generations that would go through that would have gotten to live in peace because they were faithful to the Lord. Now, we will, we will finish out the chapter with Shamgar simply because the Scriptures don't tell us much about Shamgar. There's not much to be said. It says in verse 31... After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He delivered Israel by striking down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. Now, the Philistines were pretty big people. They were, they were big fighters. You may remember the story of David and Goliath, uh, that, that, that Goliath was a Philistine giant. Uh, and here, when we talk about Shamgar, this is pretty much all the scriptures tell us about him. He's mentioned again in a couple of chapters in Judges, but we don't really get any more details. It's just a recount of what happened in this passage here. So we really don't know anything about Shamgar except, similar to the other judges, those enemies of the Israelites who were big and strong and mighty, God provided somebody and prepared a way for his people to be delivered. Now it says here that he uh, struck down these Israelites with an ox goad. An ox goad is about an eight, look, eight foot long pole with something sharp on the end that you would use to, to kind of jab your oxes to keep them in line to make them go uh, wherever you wanted them to go. And that's the weapon that Shamgar used. Now as we go through these judges we will see some judges that are, that are not very good people. And it's not that God made Ehud do these things. I don't believe that God commanded Ehud to do these things. Uh, but I do believe that God saw the kind of man that Ehud was. And even though he might not have been a godly man, uh, God still used him to accomplish the goal that needed to be accomplished. Now, maybe Ehud was a good man. Maybe he did change his life around. But the point is, is that God always takes care of his people. God always takes care. He always provides for them. And he always delivers them when they call on him. But sometimes God uses means uh, that we may not can wrap our head around. He may allow things to occur that may not make sense, that may not seem right. But when God does something, it's always for the good. God is not wrong. God is a loving God, and He is a just God. Justice was going to be served to the king of Moab, to Eglon. Justice was going to be served. It just so happened that in this case, God chose for that justice to be served through Ehud. But if it had not been through Ehud, it would have been through someone else, and ultimately, it would have been through God Himself. And so God sometimes uses means that may not make sense, but they're always for the good of His people. God never makes anyone do anything. He never makes anyone have a hard heart, but there are sometimes people who are just bent on doing evil. There are sometimes people who are just bent on having a hardness of heart. And sometimes God will use even the worst of people to accomplish His goals. On the flip side of that, there are times that God will use us as Christians who may not always be as good as we should be or do the things that we should. 
Even still, God can use us to accomplish His goals. Maybe in a, in a little better way uh, than what He used with Ehud here. But if you go back and read the Scripture of the people that God used, most of them had a lot of flaws. The judges probably being some of the worst of the bunch. But there were plenty of other good people, King David being one, who had plenty of flaws and sins in his life. But even still, it seems like God often picks the people who are, who are the roughest around the edges because they have certain strengths and he can make and he can mold them and he can use them to do his will and to accomplish his goals. And God can do the same thing for you and I. He can make and he can mold you and we may be a little rough around the edges. Now we shouldn't just say, well, I'm rough around the edges and God can use bad people so I'm just going to stay that way. Well, that's not... That not shouldn't be our attitude. Yeah, we may be rough around the edges. And, and some of those things God may use at times to accomplish His will, but we should never desire to stay rough around the edges in the way uh, that may lead us into sin. If we are rough around the edges, we should ask God to smooth those edges out and to use us in spite of us, but we should never be content with being sinful. We should always want God to be making and molding us into something better so that He can use us for His will. And if God can use Ehud to accomplish his goals, if he can use Samson, who some of you may know about, who we'll read about in a few months when we get there, if God can use these characters, who aren't even good characters that don't really care about serving the Lord too much, it doesn't appear, then how much more so can God use you and I, who do want to serve the Lord, who do want to turn from sin, who do want to walk in obedience, who do want to see God's will be done. If God can use these guys, then he can use all of us here today and we need to be willing and ready to let God use us in any way that he can and we need to be ready to let him do it let's pray God we come to you tonight we thank you for these words and I pray that you help us to kind of wrap our head around them God this was heavy stuff tonight this was some this is kind of a tough passage dear Lord this is kind of some 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 gross stuff that we read but dear Lord I pray that you help us to take the the good stuff and the easy stuff with the hard stuff and the gross stuff dear Lord and help us never to forget that you are good, that you are loving, and what you do is right, dear Lord, that there's no hate in you, God, that you, that you are always right in what you do. And help us to be able to understand that as best we can. And help us to be able to trust you in all we do, dear Lord. And I thank you for these words. And I pray that you would use us to be the men and women you want us to be, dear Lord, so that we can be faithful to serve you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.